So David comes home and he's described as ruddy and he walks into the room. Samuel looks at him. David's probably caked with sheep manure, dirt and mud. And God whispers to Samuel, he's the one. This is Moments of Hope with David Chadwick. The Old Testament book of 1 Samuel tells us that King David was a man after God's own heart. What a wonderful aspiration for all of us. Today, we begin a brand new series that takes an in-depth look at King David. And in this message, Pastor Chadwick starts out with a review of the years leading up to King David's reign. Now we begin today, this series on David, rooted in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 14, where it says, King David was a man after God's own heart. The reason that God chose David was because he was a man after God's own heart. And what I want to emphasize today is the power of having a heart for God and to challenge all of you to have that same heart for God. Genesis 1 and 2 is creation. God created the world perfectly in original intent. Genesis 3 is the fall. Sin has permeated every part of God's perfect creation. The evidences of it biblically are in the next chapters. Genesis 4 is the Cain and Abel story. Cain kills his brother Abel. How long did Cain hate his brother? As long as he was Abel. Thank you. Are you awake? Yeah, let's keep moving forward, okay? Genesis 5 through 9 is the flood narrative. Creation never intended floods to be a part of God's original intent, but that came to judge the people who lived. Genesis chapter 11 is the Tower of Babel narrative, a group of people getting together to build a tower to God to express their pride, their self-sufficiency, and God intervened and scattered them, speaking different languages all over the face of the earth, why we have so many different languages today. So God began salvation history, redemption history, in Genesis chapter 12. His plan for restoring Genesis 1 and 2 by first calling a nation called Israel, through whom he would bring his Messiah, Jesus, into the world to begin the restoration process of Genesis 1 and 2. That man was called Abraham, and through his relationship with Sarah began a lineage of patriarchs that continued throughout the rest of Genesis. There's Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, the four patriarchs. Their stories told for the rest of Genesis. At the end of Genesis, 70 Jews are in Egypt. Joseph is overseeing them by the mighty plan of God. At the end of Genesis 50, between that and Exodus 1 is 400 years. Those 70 Jews became 3 million. They eventually went into captivity in Exodus. God raised up a leader named Moses to free them from that slavery. God did so with mighty signs and wonders, parting the Red Sea, taking them to a mountain called Sinai. There God entered into a covenant with Moses and the children of Israel, fulfilling what he promised to Abraham, saying, I'll give you a nation, a land filled with milk and honey where you will live, where you will be established, and there I will bring Messiah into the world. That covenant was made. God authored it and said, here are the laws I want you to obey for your expression of belief in this covenant. Those laws are called the Ten Commandments. After they were given to the people, God led them to a place called Kadesh Barnea. In about two weeks, he put them in that city. They sent out 12 spies to look at the promised land. Ten of the spies came back with a message of despair, a bad news report. There are huge giants in the land. We can't possibly conquer them. The people bought the lie, and God said, you folks are going to lap around the wilderness for 40 years. I'll not have a generation filled with unbelief and doubt entering into my promised land. So all of those three million died off, and a new generation was raised up, people who had faith. God then led them into the promised land as Moses passed on the mantle of leadership to Joshua. That's the book of Joshua, where Joshua conquers the land with the people, and they establish themselves in this nation called Israel. 
And then at the end of Joshua's reign, he failed to do what Moses had done, and that was pass leadership mantles on to other people. There was no leader at the end of Joshua's reign, and that entered into a time called the Book of Judges. In the nation of Israel, they would go through cycles of first abhorring sin, then enduring sin, then finally embracing sin and falling into a moral abyss. Whenever that happened, God would raise up a judge who would restore them to hating sin and then God's recognition and blessing upon that nation. Uh, the final judge that was raised up was named Samuel, starting in 1 Samuel chapter 1. But before he was raised up, there is the most telling verse in all of the Bible. At the end of the book of Judges, this verse says, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Sound familiar? That is the essence of sin. Everybody doing what is right in their own eyes, not seeking God's will in anything. So at the end of that time period, as Israel once again swung into a moral abyss, the people were discouraged, they wanted leadership, so they looked at all the nations around them and they said, let's have a king. Samuel said, God alone should be your king. They said, no, we want a king, we want to be like the other nations. So they elected a king. His name was Saul. He was tall, attractive, articulate, bright. There was only one major problem with Saul. His heart was filled with paranoia and demagoguery. He was filled with self-aggrandizement. And eventually, though he started well, he allowed the nation to spiral even more down into a moral abyss. And it was at this point that Samuel looked at the nation, looked at Saul in his terrible demagoguery, and finally he said, Lord, what should I do? His heart was grieving. His heart was sad. God says, I've got another king chosen, a king after my own heart. I want you to go anoint him as that king. That story is told in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. It is today's text. That is Genesis 1 to 1 Samuel 16. Let's pick up the story right now. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do and you shall anoint for him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, do you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and said to him, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the, the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. 
And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward, and Samuel rose and went up to Ramah. Let me see if I can contemporize the story, retelling it to you and making it a little more meaningful for you today. Samuel was the last great judge in the Bible. He was also a prophet and a priest, powerful. At this point in 1 Samuel 16, he's older. He's graying. He probably has a beard down to his belly. He's not for this world much longer. He's grieving over Saul's leadership and what Saul had brought to the nation of Israel. And he's crying out to the Lord, what do I do? This king is horrible. The nation's slandering you, God, and falling into a moral abyss. And God speaks to him at Ramah and says, don't give up hope. I have already chosen, before you ever cried out to me, I've already chosen another king. Go to Bethlehem, which was probably an insignificant village, an outpost area that was not very important. It was not in Samuel's normal judicial route. But God says, go there anyway and meet Jesse the Bethlehemite. One of his boys is going to be the next king of Israel. So Samuel, in obedience, starts on his trek to Bethlehem. I would imagine there might have been some boys on the outskirts of the area playing hide-and-seek, throwing stones at one another, laughing, playing, and they see old Samuel trekking toward the village. They run in and tell the elders of the village and their parents, Samuel's coming, and a gasp fills their hearts. The great judge of Israel is coming to our city. Uh-oh, what we do wrong? Are we bringing the wrath of God upon Bethlehem? So they rush out to meet Samuel as he comes into the city. They ask the question, are you coming peaceably? Or are you bringing the wrath of God upon our village? And Samuel goes, no, no, no. I'm coming to have a party. Let's have a party together. Let's party hardy. In fact, I want you to take a heifer in a society that normally didn't eat much meat. Take the heifer and kill it and put it on the barbecue spit and start turning it. And consecrate yourself because this is going to be like a, a worship slash church picnic afterwards with barbecue as our main meal. And I want you to go home first because in the worship service, you need to be consecrated. Wash your bodies so you can be clean before the Lord. And if you don't mind, maybe wash your clothes too. That might help a bit. Make yourselves ready. But what was going on in Samuel's mind is this will give me enough time to do what I really wanted to do if they go home and wash their clothes and wash themselves and then have to allow the hours necessary for the pit barbecue to turn and be ready to be consumed. I'll have enough time to go to Jesse and find out which one of his boys is the king. So in the between time, as the people go to consecrate themselves, Samuel says, who's Jesse the Bethlehemite? And he steps forward and said, that's me. He said, I need to talk to you about one of your boys. Now, can't you imagine what was going on in Jesse's mind at this point? The great 
prophet, priest, and judge of all of Israel, getting older, probably needs a successor and apprentice he can teach. He's going to choose one of my boys to be that apprentice. And that means my boy one day is going to be one of the most powerful, if not the most powerful person in all of Israel. That means, woo, ka-ching, ka-ching. I'm going to make some money out of this deal. One of my boys is going to finally free us from this flea-bitten small-town city and my own poverty within this city. Oh, I've got a bunch of sheep in the sheepfold looked after by my youngest boy. Woo! Party hardy is right. This is going to be something that sets me free. So Samuel says, Jesse, would you mind bringing each one of your boys before me? I need to meet each one. So the first one comes. His name is Eliab, and he impresses Samuel immediately. He is tall, handsome, sculpted. He was also a military officer in Saul's army that we'll see in the next chapters. I mean, gals, is there anything more attractive than an athletic, sculpted, good-looking, tall guy in a military uniform? And Samuel looked at him and said, this must be the guy. This is the one the Lord has chosen. He's got it all together. And God whispered in his ear and said, no. No, Samuel, we don't want Saul the sequel. We don't want Saul part two. Because the sequel is hardly ever better than the original movie except the dark night rises, which is another case for another time. Okay. All right. No, don't look on his outward appearance. We made that mistake with Saul because I don't look on outward appearances as my sign of calling and using someone. I always look at the heart. Okay. Jesse, he's not the one. Eliab, you're out of here. Well, then steps before him, Abinadab. And the Lord immediately says, nope, not the one. Then Shema steps into Samuel's presence, and the Lord says, nope, not the one. And then there parades before Samuel all of the seven boys, and the Lord consistently says with each one, nope, 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 nope. And he may have said nada just to make his point, okay? Not the one. So Samuel finally says, isn't there another one? Do you you not have another boy? Because he's thinking, I know God told me one of your sons is the next king, and none of these are it. Jesse hems and haws and sighs and says, well, there is the youngest. The youngest. That word in the Hebrew is hakadon. Can you say it with me? Hakadon. One more time. Hakadon, the, the youngest. It has several different translations. One can mean baby bro. Baby brother, how many of you are the youngest in your families? I am the youngest in my family. My brother Howard's five years older than I am. My sister Carolyn is three years older than I am. Let me tell you the truth growing up. They never took me seriously. Never. They'd have a discussion among themselves. Maybe mom and dad would be a part of the discussion. And if I tried to interject anything, they would skirt me to the edges of the conversation and go, that's just baby bro. That's just the youngest. That's Hakadon. Don't take him seriously. It can also be translated insignificant. He's the youngest. He's Hakadon. He's just not important. Or not worthy is another translation. He's not worthy even to be heard. He's just the youngest. He's the family runt. 
his father even forgot him to invite him to come to the picnic. The great prophet, priest, and judge of Israel comes to have a great county fair worship service slash picnic, and the dad forgets to invite the runt, the youngest. So finally, Jesse says, yeah, I've got one more. He's out in the sheepfold. He's the runt. And Samuel says, I'm not letting anybody sit down until he gets here. Remain standing and go get him. You can't sit down until he gets here. There's nothing that can cause more uncomfortability, is there, than having to stand up for a long period of time. That's what Samuel did. Brilliantly, you're not sitting down until he comes here. So they immediately rushed out into the sheep pastures, and they said, David, come on home. So David comes home, and he's described as ruddy, which means red. Red complexion, maybe red hair. Handsome with beautiful eyes. And he walks into the room. Samuel looks at him. David's probably caked with sheep manure, dirt and mud. And God whispers to Samuel, he's the one. He's the one. Take your horn of oil and go anoint him. And Samuel takes his oil and a symbol of anointing a king over Israel. He pours it down his head to his feet. And there along with the manure and the mud is the oil of God symbolizing David's now king. Moments of Hope with David Chadwick. Thanks for listening. Coming up, David joins me in the studio to talk about his latest Davidism. We'll be right back. This is the Ministry Minute, focusing on ministries that have a positive impact on our community. I'm Mark McManus, and here is Jim Noble with the Dream Center Charlotte. Hello, my name is Jim Noble with the Charlotte Mecklenburg Dream Center. And Bo and I, the director of the Dream Center, just wanted to take a minute and tell you guys thank you. Moments of hope. David and Marilyn Chadwick, all of you there, Dean, uh, we all have been phenomenal for us. Uh, you, you've been there since 08 when we started King's Kitchen, and that kind of grew into the Dream Center. And the meals we've fed the last eight weeks, probably exceeding 55,000 now, I guess. Uh, we're so grateful you guys have made such an impact in the city by reaching out to those that have needs greater than we have. And uh, what do you think, Bo? Yeah, so it's been amazing to, to just watch the, the work that's happened um, with the meals as they've gone out. You know, uh, we, I always tell people it's not about the food, it's about the relationships that are formed and the ministry that takes place. And so, um, and JT Williams and Thomas Burrow and Reed Park, I mean, it has opened up doors that we never thought would be open. Um, you know, we've seen people come out um, and just welcomed us with open arms, just so grateful for the meals and, and we just thank you moments of hope and just this couldn't be this wouldn't be possible without you guys and you know uh the, the first call we made uh when we decided to go this route and provide these meals was the moments of hope and it was uh, a phone call that was met with a resounding yes and so we're so appreciative of you guys and just um everything you all do for us and for the kingdom and not only that but you uh, also set into our kitchen in the dream center now this week started producing meals there and as the restaurants open back up all the meals will shift to the dream center with the kitchen you helped us do so we're so grateful for you guys god bless you god bless moments of hope and we just pray an unlimited return harvest on the seed you sowed into this ministry thank you very much
I'm Jen Houston, and with me today is our pastor, David Chadwick. David, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Jen. Great being with you as well. Well, in this morning's e-devotion, you wrote that the more you stir manure, the more it stinks. <laughs> what do you mean by this? Well, it's one, when you take a look at it at first glance, you don't understand what it means. The more you think about it, the more you know it's true. This one actually came from my dad. And whenever I would get upset because somebody would criticize me or say something bad about me, you know, the natural instinct is to retaliate, sure. to defend yourself. And dad would always say to me, son, if you can step over the offense, that's always the best thing to do. If you can take the high road, the one less traveled, you can do that and it'll be better for you. But he also said, but always remember that the more you stir manure, the more it stinks. <laughs> In a very literal way, if you're around manure and you try to stir it up, ooh, there's that awful odor that comes forth. When you try to retaliate, when you try to defend yourself, you're just keeping the issue alive. And I'll never forget a newspaper reporter said to me, whenever I write an article that may be negative about someone, I always tell them, just remember this lasts for about two days. Mm. There's a news cycle. It goes away and people move on to the next news cycle. Mm. And the same truth is what my dad was trying to say to me, I think, is if you can just step over the offense, if you refuse to retaliate and don't stir the manure, the stink won't be there, and ultimately, the rain will wash it away, mm. the smell will go away, and you'll be able to continue to live life. That's really good. I don't know why, but for some reason, the word shame comes to mind, and I just feel like maybe I've experienced when I've continued to stir, whether it's in my mind, heart, or in a conversation, stir up the drama is how you could replace right. manure, and it just causes shame to just continue and to grow, and we, we can't live under that. Yeah, accurate. Accusation is one of the hard places to try to live in, and the enemy knows that. He's called the accuser of the brothers and sisters in Christ. He knows that if he can make people feel guilty and ashamed, mm -hmm. they can't move on in life. They're crippled to try to do something for the Lord. So he uses the voices of other people to try to accuse us in that conflict that my dad told me, step over that if you can. Uh, he also uses the inward voice uh, that he just has access to our minds in some supernatural ways. And I've always found that the enemy's voice within me sounds strangely like my own. Mm -hmm. And it usually has a Southern accent, if you will, <laughs> because I was raised in the South. That's because the enemy knows your voice voice, and he mm. disguises his voice with your voice to try to accuse you, shame you. And again, Jen, if that's the case, you need to learn how to step over that offense. Mm -hmm. You need to, to give that to the Lord and say, you know, I know I'm a child of God. I'm loved by you. What other people think of me, even what I think of myself doesn't matter. What matters is what do you think of me? And you mm. tell me I'm beloved. I'm cared for. No shame, guilt, no unforgiveness. I am cared for by you. And when you move in that direction, and refuse to give the voice of the accuser through that inner voice or someone else any mm -hmm. power over you, you can start to be healed and move in health and wholeness in the Lord. That's really good. That is really, truly replacement therapy. Like we're not just going to pretend like it's not happening. We are being active in this fight against shame and against the drama or manure in our lives, and we can stand firm against it. Yeah, we refuse to glance at it, first of all. We especially refuse to stir it because we know when we do, it just 
just causes it to stink more. The problems persist, and we continue to live in the crippling agony of shame, guilt, and unforgiveness. So folks, let it go. Give it to God. Don't stir it, and let the Lord be the one to wash away all of that smell and stink in your life. He is quite able to do so. Well, this is a memorable one. Thank you so much, David. Thank you, Jen. And listeners, go to momentsofhopechurch.org. You can get these daily e-blasts. You can subscribe there every morning in your inbox at 7 a.m. From my heart to yours, a way to begin your day with a moment of hope. This has been Moments of Hope with David Chadwick, Senior Pastor of Moments of Hope Church. Today's message is from our online worship service, and you can be a part of our service each Sunday morning at both 9 and 11 o'clock by going to momentsofhopechurch.org. While you're online, be sure to sign up for David's daily Moments of Hope, delivered every morning to your inbox. And also, check out David's weekly Hopecast. They're both free and available through our website. Again, that web address is momentsofhopechurch.org. For David and the entire Moments of Hope Church staff, this is Jen Houston asking you to pray for the teachers as the school year comes to a close.